This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to episode 64 of the Olive Magazine podcast with me, Laura Rowe, the editor and your host for this week. This week I've been recovering from Wilderness Festival, which wins the crown for the most foodie festival I've ever been to. Think fine dining supper clubs, yurt feasts and gourmet street food. I grabbed the ridiculously young and talented Michelin-starred chef Tommy Banks for the Black Swan at Olstead after he cooked us a slap-up seven-course lunch. Food director Janine visited online ingredient specialist souschef.co.uk and found out how they sourced their incredible stock, what ingredients have exploded in the last year and some cooking trend predictions for the future. Plus, if you're the kind of camper who's more concerned with packing a corkscrew than a cagoule, listen in to travel editor Rhiannon as she takes us on a tour of the French campsite that comes with its own vineyard. First up, here's chef Tommy Banks and I on a grassy knoll in Oxfordshire overlooking a sparkling lake with tinnies of cider by our sides. Hello, this is Laura and I'm at Wilderness Festival with Tommy Banks. Hello. Hello, and you cooked us an absolutely gorgeous lunch yesterday, didn't you? Yeah, we were cooking on the chef's table yesterday, so much fun. Uh, did four sittings of 24 people, so about 100 covers all day. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it was just great fun. Cooking yeah. nice food, great atmosphere, and yeah, just a bit of a party. Yeah, we couldn't quite believe how you managed to do such intricate food, such uh, delicate food in a field. So how did you manage to do all of that? Uh, quite a lot of preparation. Yeah. Uh, been working hard. We were up early yesterday morning. Yeah. Um, and I think you just got to be clever and write a menu that works for the for the setting but it certainly you came at lunchtime which was was nice and chilled it was <laughs> yeah. all about the food at lunchtime yeah. when we got into the evening it turned into a bit of a party we had people dancing on the tables <laughs> we had we had, a, we had a pole dancer in the middle of the room it was it was pretty fun to be honest <laughs> good going well for the listeners that aren't aware of you which i can't believe there would be any but can you give us a bit of a background about your career and about the black swan as well yeah sure so i'm a chef um of a restaurant in north yorkshire called yeah. the black swan yeah uh, which i run my family and it's largely centered around uh, sort of the ideas of self-sufficiency really uh, okay. we grow our own vegetables and uh, do a lot of foraging and yeah just trying to keep it nice yeah so i think i saw that were you celebrating 10 years at the restaurant uh, 11 years 11 now years. yeah okay. so i was um i'm 28 now so i was 17 okay. when we took it over wow okay um so yeah, it wasn't great back then though. So me, and my, my brother's two years older, James. He runs okay. the front of house. Okay. And uh, yeah, when we first took it over, we mainly had lock-ins and parties and had yeah. a great time. It's a little bit like coming to a, cooking in a festival, really, every yeah. night. Uh, but it wasn't great. And uh, yeah, we've got our heads down now, and it's it's a lot better. So have you been in the kitchen ever since you were seventeen, or yeah, 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 pretty much. And so you yourself taught chef? Um, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> uh, people say I mean I didn't go to college. I haven't worked in any of the restaurants yeah. or anything like that. Um, but I feel like I learn. You learn from everybody you meet, don't you? So yeah. I always think it's quite an odd thing to do is to claim to be self-taught. Like, yeah. like you've been locked in some room and, <laughs> and suddenly all these epiphanies have happened to you and you've learned how to cook. I mean, in reality, you've read it in a book or something. Yeah, yeah. So how's it evolved over the 11 years? Uh, well, you very much started as a, as a pub. Um, pretty ropey one, to be honest. Uh, but then when the recession came along, uh, no one really wants to come to a, a ropey pub. So I think yeah. like 2008, we sort of thought, let's try and make this a bit, bit better. Uh, make it to more of a destination because yeah. that's what we had to do because we're really in the middle of nowhere yeah uh, and then it's just really evolved from just trying to make 
make nice food, you know, try and work really hard and try and make it good. Yeah. That was that was the only real goal. I mean, we didn't know what like Michelin stars were and things like that when we started out. Anyway, we had no idea, so we just kind of learned as we went. Okay, nice. And so, if you got um, a freeholding uh, today on some where you grow all your vegetables and herbs and things like that, or, yeah. So, or a big I mean, garden. I come from a farming background. My dad's still a farmer, and uh, we've got a couple of acres at the back of the restaurant where we grow pretty much all the vegetables to the mm-hmm. restaurant, and then a few more acres down my dad's farm where we grow some like big crops like potatoes and stuff like that we okay. get a tractor on so yeah a lot of growing space yeah and so do, are there any flavors or dishes that you think particularly define the restaurant or your style uh, of cooking yeah i mean we obviously we do a lot of foraging stuff there's a lot of preserving so there's a lot of the uh ingredients that we'll use all year round yeah um but probably like a bit of a signature dish in the restaurant is a, a beetroot dish okay um it's a beetroot that we cook in beef fat Yes, so I've heard about of, this. It sounds yeah, amazing. It's kind of like an irony. So like, you would think nothing of getting a beef steak and cooking it in some vegetable, put a bit of oil in a pan and cook it. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is we, we slowly cook this beetroot for like four hours. Wow. And it wizens up. It gets really sweet and smoky and meaty and just like really delicious. So it's like a like meat root, basically. Yeah. So that's like that. one of our signature dishes. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, it was interesting you saying about the foraging and the kind of preserving and pickling. We had some incredible bits in the menu yesterday. We had, uh, was it wild garlic buds we had that you yeah. preserved? as well and we had uh, some unripe strawberries in yeah. a razor clam dish really really cool where do you get your inspiration from is it the land is it the uh, farm little bits of things I mean so the first thing you ate yesterday was practically a kebab to be honest yeah. <laughs> like it was just some really nice uh, slow roasted lamb breast um, with fermented turnips which I love I just love that really acidity good, yeah. from fermented uh, vegetables and then some uh, pickled wild garlic seeds which anybody should do that they're so easy like after the wild garlic flowers just go pick the little seed pods off yeah. and if you pick those they're like the ultimate caper they're like they're so punchy you could have them in like salads or with like charcuterie or something like mm. that or in a kebab really really good we really enjoyed those okay what about people or um do any of those do you have any chefs that you've worked with over the years that have inspired you in your cooking uh well not working with so much i mean uh because i've largely worked on on my own but i yeah. mean uh, the guys i work with every day are, are pretty inspirational yeah. we have we have a sort of like a little family it's a bit of a hub and uh we kind of bounce all the ideas around so, so yeah so I guess the guys I work with every day, yeah. I suppose, more than anything. What's it like working with your family? Because it's kind of intense enough sometimes uh, seeing your family at Christmas and things like that, but having to work with them every single day, day in, day out, yeah. in a high-pressure job like being a chef in a kitchen, what's that like? We actually had our first Christmas off this year in oh, like really? 10 yeah. years, yeah, and it was incredibly stressful. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think like, all of us thought we'd rather just have worked. Um, but yeah, it's not bad. We all have our sort of roles, you see. So James is front of house, I do okay. the kitchen. Yeah. Uh, my dad does all the sort of the growing and, and that, and he's the handyman who fixes everything. He's like yeah. a go-to guy. And then my mum's, uh, well, she works quite a bit in the restaurant. She's a good okay. hostess. Yeah. Uh, and also... Um, uh, the rooms, the bedroom. She does the accommodation okay. sort of things. So we have our own sort of disciplines. We largely get on pretty well, really. Yeah. But I suppose the great thing about family is you don't have to pussyfoot around each other, yeah. so you can be pretty blunt. Yeah. And you can tell, yeah, if you don't have something you say, and and you can kind of you don't hold grudges, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So what's it been like being at Wilderness? This is your first year. This yeah. Year? This is actually my first ever festival. Is it? So wow. Like, well, yeah, Baptism of fire. Exactly. So yeah. it's been amazing. It's so much fun. Uh, obviously, we were grafting yesterday. That was. Uh, 16 hours of really like hard work but yeah. I mean, so much fun the guests were so lovely everyone's yeah. in such a cool such a nice vibe everyone's in such a good atmosphere and and like like I say the last sort of sitting we had last night everyone was dancing on the tables it was awesome and uh, one thing I say about this place is the food is unreal yeah it's like another going level, around there's like all, all the fast food is just like brilliant there's so many good brands here yeah and like I've not eaten a single bad thing so far and I've literally grazed around the whole <laughs> place um, so yeah I'm really looking forward to it and tonight I'm going I'm going proper down 
dancing with glitter. Proper dancing, I like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So going raving in the forest, I hope, I am, in the valley. Yeah. Good, good, good. Um, are there any particular food outlets that you want to go visit while you're here that you've uh, inspired? Uh, yeah, I, well, I had um, I had some bao buns on the first night, nice. and they were absolutely delicious. Um, and oh, patty and bun, I love their uh, yeah, I love their so burgers. Good. They they're saved like, me last year when I had like one. They're so tasty. Yeah. So yesterday we were. Um, We'd, we'd, we'd come in at seven o'clock, we were cracking on trying to do all the prep, and then we'd done two sittings of food. And all of a sudden, look around, we're like, it's going really well, but we haven't eaten a single thing yeah. today. And it's like <laughs> yeah. four o'clock in the afternoon, we're going to fall. We've got eight burgers came in from Patty and Burn. Nice. Oh, we were set up a little, a little tin of beer, and we were like on the way for the last, <laughs> last sitting. So, yeah, yeah, so many great things. I need to get around the ball. Yeah, fantastic. Have you got any tips for any uh, festival goers next year if they come to Wilderness, what they should check out and see? Well, do you know, like yesterday, I mean, the, the chef's table, I think there's four days of it and there's 100 tickets a day, roughly. Mm. So, I mean, it's not for 400 people out of 30,000, so it's yeah. pretty exclusive. And all day long yesterday, people were just coming up and, saw, saying, yeah. and saying, like, oh, can we come in? Can we come in? It's already pre-booked. So I think, I think getting in there early, because yeah. I thought I would just turn up and do things. Like I was thinking, oh, Sunday morning, I might have a massage. Yeah. That's not going to happen. <laughs> I, th I think the biggest tip is when you buy your tickets... Book, book the things is what you want to do as well. Yeah. There's so much going on. Like You don't need to book things, but if you want to come and eat at the chef's table or you want to get a treatment or something, yeah. some of the nicer, more luxurious things to the yeah, festival, yeah. then I'd book that early. Love that. And uh, tell me about the next kind of 10, 11 years at the restaurant. What are your plans? Do you have a, a plan or goal or an evolution of where you're going to go to? Oh, my God. I don't know <laughs> what I'm going to do in the next 10, 11 days. Um, well, the restaurant, I just want to keep progressing it. Um, yeah. You know, I love it and I feel like... I'm so passionate about it. I feel like we could we could do so much more there. I'm writing a book. Yes, uh, so that comes out yeah. next year. Okay, uh, how's that going? Quite well actually. It's a steep yeah. learning curve. I mean, yeah. I, I left school at 16 and I wasn't particularly academic then. So, yeah. so writing has been interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, that's going really really well. Okay. The photos are great at least. Amazing. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty uh, sure the recipes would be good too. How are you yeah. managing to fit that in around working in the kitchen as um, well? We just work really hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I've got Nick, who's my development chef, been with me for years. And yeah. kind of between us, we've been like every spare hour, we've been editing and we've been uh, testing recipes and everything. So it's been great. And then uh, hopefully, looking to next year, we might be opening a new site. That's something That's we're. That's exciting. Uh, it's something that we've been wanting to do for quite a long time. It's just finding exactly the right place. And that, that would be in York. In York, okay. So and will it be the same kind of vibe or different direction? Oh, no, wow, no, okay. Totally, yeah, very, very casual. Okay. Um, it's something like I've done the, quite a lot of television now and yeah. you, know, you do things like Great British Menu such a massive audience but actually only a small part of the audience probably wants to come and eat in your fine dining restaurant yeah. so I kind of I kind of felt like I love my restaurant and now I'd always do that but I kind of like to do something slightly casual just to feed more people you know yeah I really like that okay cool and tell me about Great British Menu how was that for you oh, Great British Menu was great I mean so I did it two years in a row um, yeah it absolutely takes over your life. Yeah. Uh, but it's amazing, amazingly satisfying. And, and to have the opportunities as well, I've cooked in the past of Westminster. Uh, I've wandered around the House of Lords and like, I even had a little sit on one of the seats. Like, you're not even allowed in the House of Lords unless you're a lord. Like, and, you're a lord um, for the day. And then like Wimbledon, well, that was amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, you get to go in the Royal Box, you do all these amazing things. Like, you kind of like feel quite lucky to be able to do these things. So yeah. it's, it's an amazing opportunity. Any chef is to this, get yourself signed up if you can and do that do that show because it's it's an amazing platform for your career as well. Amazing. And so what else should we look out for, Tommy? What have you got planned for the next year? Are you going to be on any more TV or yeah. just busy with the book and the restaurant? Uh, well, the book's coming out next year. Very busy with the restaurant. There is bits of TV going forward. Uh, filmed a few little bits of things, which I'm quite excited about. Yeah. Quite cool, but I can't really talk about them now. Rubbish. But, uh, <laughs> a few, I've got a few little appearances 
Princess Kuna, which are quite good fun. And okay. That's the amazing thing about TV. It's never like, oh, let's just um, film you making a recipe in like your house. It's like, do you fancy coming along to this amazing venue and uh, like cooking some ridiculous food in a stupid place? You're like, yeah, that sounds <laughs> awesome. So, so now I've got a couple of things coming out this sort of autumn, which are going to be really good fun. Brilliant. All right. Well, I'm going to leave you to it. Enjoy the festival. Yeah, you get, too. Get drinking beer and go raving. I will do. All Thank right. You very cheers, much. Tommy. Thank cheers. you. Bye bye. Big thank you to Tommy and the incredible Wilderness Festival gang for having us. If you like the sound of Tommy's cooking, don't forget you can make his dinner party recipes over at olivemagazine.com. Next, here's food director Janine as she explores the wondrous souschef.co.uk. So I've come to souschef.co.uk today, which is an online cooking emporium. Um, it's actually an Aladdin's cave and of ingredients. And I'm here with Nicola Lando, who's one of the owners of Sous Chef. Um, hi, Nicola, how are you? Hi, I'm good, thank you. <laughs> Our readers might know about Sous Chef because we, we recommend it quite a lot. Uh, we started using it when it first started about five years ago. Um, whenever there's an unusual ingredient, I always just say to Adam, our cookie writer, go on Sous Chef, they'll have it because um, you really do cover so much stuff. Like, tell, tell us how you got started. Tell us about the idea behind it. Um, I was working in venture capital um, with lots of people who'd started their own businesses and they were so passionate and excited about growing them. Um, and that passion really rubbed off onto me. And so I thought that's, that's something I'd like to do. Um, but I hadn't really got any idea of exactly what it was going to be at that point. I spent a lot of time reading um, about startups in America. Um, I spent a long time thinking, no, you can't go into food because <laughs> I loved cooking and I kind of was reading all the time cookbooks and cookery magazines. Um, but I kind of thought, no, that's your passion. You, you shouldn't do something that, you know... Oh, really? That's interesting because that. a lot of people do it because it's their passion. Yes, I know. But I kind of thought, at the time, I thought, oh, you know, work should be work and, and <laughs> hobby should be hobby. Um, but actually, eventually, that, that kind of came a little closer um, and it was food that I was really interested in. And so to learn more about the industry, I went to work at or kind of Gautier restaurant in Soho, oh, which okay, is a great yeah. French restaurant, um, were kind enough to have me come and work in the kitchen um, for about three or four months. And whilst I was there, I saw just the most amazing range of ingredients yeah. and what, what those could change or how they could change dishes and what they could do to your cooking. Um, and most of them weren't available to home cooks. Yeah. And I'd been seeing some of those things in the types of cookbooks that I was reading at the time. So lots of the Michelin-style restaurants that used different ingredients from around the world. So something might use something from Korea, from yeah. Japan, um, from lots of the kind of patisserie ingredients from France. And just as a home cook, I couldn't find them in one place. And actually many of them I couldn't find at all. So lots of the patisserie ingredients would only be available in maybe five kilo tubs. Yeah, like a sort of chef, chef sizes, basically. Yeah, exactly, yeah. like pistachio paste. I mean, yeah. you couldn't get that in, in yeah. small pots at the time. And I thought, you know, maybe if I could make those available to people, there might be um, the opportunity for a website that actually brings all of those mm -hmm. different ingredients together. I mean, it was a brilliant idea because I remember when it launched and we were thrilled because... We do a lot of chef recipes and of course they'll throw in these ingredients like pistachio paste mm -hmm. um, and and you you were like, where the heck do we get it? And we would have to go and kind of get it off them and then, you know, <laughs> try it with that and then recommend. And, and, and yet we sort of tied ourselves up in knots. A lot of the time we had to sort of reject recipes because we literally couldn't get the ingredients and we knew our readers wouldn't be able to get it. So oh. so it's great that you managed to bring it down to, yeah. you know, home, home sort of level. I'm so glad. Yeah. <laughs> So how many lines have you got? How many products do you... Um, 
we're getting on for 4,000 now. Yeah, which is incredible as well. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, it's interesting that actually the website when we first started, I didn't think it looked that different. And we started with only about 500 ingredients. Yeah. Um, and since then, we've just been adding, we started with probably a similar number of cuisines. We probably yeah. added a few more, um, but we've just been adding a lot more different things to each of those cuisines so we started off with the basics that you'd need to mm. start cooking and how did you get the me- how did you get the message out there that you were there I mean what what sort of pickup did you get at the beginning did you have a moment where you thought oh my god no one's gonna know we're here or order anything or um, pretty much pretty much the the moment we opened the website to the to customers and we sat there kind of nervous yeah. thinking, is anyone actually going to shop here and then you know, within minutes, an order for ravioli stamps, I think, came through. Oh, really? From someone we didn't know. And <laughs> <laughs> Not your mum. Mum. No, she was probably an hour later. Yeah. Um, but no, and that's that was great. And also just, I think, other um, or, you know, recipe writers, um, magazines yeah. such as Olive, which yeah. was great, um, really picked up on it. I think other people, lots of people had the similar similar problems mm. um, to you finding finding those types of ingredients yeah and so I think the magazines just really helped get the word out about us yeah I mean because you were doing us a massive favor as well (laughs) so suddenly also the other thing was I think in the past you would you would have a a feature and you know like say a Japanese feature and you'd have to send people to five different websites because not every website sold the whole range of ingredients Mm -hmm. I think that's where you came in quite well where you kind of had the you know you would you would think about the whole cuisine and what mm-hmm. you needed to put stuff together and like offer everything that people would need need to cook that so that's you know it's good yeah that's um, what we tried to do so tell us how you because I'm I'm baffled about you know um how do you choose what you add on to your your little roster of ingredients because it must there's so much stuff out there I mean how do you decide what you know what to bring in and what to start selling uh, to start with <laughs> i I basically just picked a lot of cookbooks. Okay. And so I'd pick two or three of um, probably the um, most well-known Bibles from each different cuisine. Um, I opened up a big Excel spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> would read to... I've started the business with my husband, Nick. So one of us would read through the book saying, spotting the unusual ingredients. Okay. And so then we'd make a tally of how many times each of those ingredients were mentioned in each of the cookbooks. Oh, God, that's, um, that's And then brilliant. the ones with the you know, greatest number of... Um, marks on the page um I'd have to find yeah and the ones with smaller numbers then I'd um you know we think about and probably add yeah. to the list for later but that at least meant that someone if they bought a Japanese cookbook could try most of the recipes yeah. with the ingredients we were stocking so um, you so you were literally thinking this that you can't cook authentic Japanese without using this like yeah, I don't without, you know these eight ingredients or, are yeah. in every recipe yeah and so that's we have to have those um, and then these ones will enhance a few recipes, so maybe we can bring mm. those on in a few months. Um, and we still we still go through that process as new cookbooks come out, yeah. um, as different cuisines come to the fore more. Mm. Um, although now I think it's shifted a little bit from you know, what people know they need, because other people would have been reading those cookbooks at the time and looking for those ingredients and yeah. not necessarily finding them, to things that we also think are delicious mm. um, and think people should try. And now I think we've got a big enough audience or kind of lots of people are coming yeah. to the site looking for things that they don't necessarily know they want, but might also be really tasty. But how do you, because I know we talked about pistachio paste and we're actually mm-hmm. using it in our September issue, which is out now. Um, how, for example, do you do you start selling something like fennel pollen, which we, which a, which a chef randomly put in a <laughs> recipe and we sort of, we said it optional, but you can get it at sous chef. I mean, where, where would that come from? Um, 
something like fennel pollen, I think I maybe read in a couple of recipes, but also at the time, one of our suppliers, um, who specifically sells Calabrian produce, um, oh, okay. said, you know, how about you try this? Oh, like, okay, Great. So, so they'll send really you samples. Yeah. And, yeah. So it's a mixture of, I go to lots of trade fairs around the world. Right. Yeah. Um, look at, kind of always walk around a supermarket every time I go yeah. travelling um, and also find yeah. delis or particular specialist food stores. That's one of my favourite things to do. My husband thinks I'm really weird. It's because, great, isn't it? Any, <laughs> supermarket, any non-British supermarket yeah. is exciting. I was in Thailand the other week and, and the first thing I said was, can we can we go and find a supermarket? Because I just want to see <laughs> <laughs> looking at me like I was insane um, yeah. but it's so much fun and you just kind of you're like picking up packs like what's this buying yeah. it so you can take it home and try it it's yeah. fun isn't it it's funny now um now that I go to supermarkets in different countries particularly um Korea when I went a couple of years ago it was just amazing suddenly recognizing all of these ingredients because yeah. we had them on the shelves yeah, of, sushi chef, of course yeah um that was fun cool. and um do you so do you eat out a lot I mean do you eat a lot of like because I, I think a lot of your ingredients as well or, or things that you know I've seen popping up on chef's menus and then they so do you get inspiration from from that end as well yeah absolutely and I think chefs certainly lead trends a lot yeah. in cooking um they'll they'll be the first people to discover a yeah. new ingredient and try it and pass partly because they eating and traveling as well um their suppliers will also pick up something and say do you get you chefs ordering from you too or do they yeah we do the, it's yeah. probably about 20 to 30 percent chefs oh, really? now wow yeah and do they request stuff from you or like ask you to get stuff in for them Yes. Um, yeah, they do. Yeah, that's cool. So they're kind of driving it a little bit sometimes mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So let's talk about some of the best sellers. What sort of things um, are really flying off the shelves at the minute, yeah. do you think? Um, I was just looking at some of our sales data. Um, over the last year, I think you know, smoking is still huge. Yeah, it's massive, um, isn't it? Home smoking, hot smoking, American yeah. barbecue, um, hot smokers you yeah. know, so you can do it at home things like barbecue rubs um yeah. liquid smoke so you can get those smoky flavors it's just um kind of people smoldering wood and then condensing yeah. that smoke into water yeah it's basically smoky water um that you can marinate things in um and cold smoking as well okay Even nadia um nadia's cookery British cookery program. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she was cold smoking, I think, some haddock. And cold smoking's just been really popular. And that will grow yeah. again in winter. Because you sell kit as well, don't you? Yeah, we you do. Know, I we have a lot of didn't say that. Well it's not just, not just the ingredients. You've got cookware. Yeah. Um, Mexican foods. Um, oh, yeah, that's really become big. really yeah. huge, hasn't it? I think it? partly, you know, everyone loves chilli. Yeah. Those smoky flavours, chipotle chilli, chipotle and adobo. Um, people are cooking a lot more Mexican food. I think as well it's the authenticity thing that we were mm-hmm. talking about before we started, which is everyone kind of knows Tex-Mex, but yeah. then, you know, with things like Oaxaca becoming popular, um, people started wanting to get seven different types of chilli, like the yeah. really authentic stuff and start cooking yeah. it sort of from scratch. So, yeah. And also yeah. experiment with it. I yeah. saw in your last issue, the August issue, you had buffalo wing sauce with... Um, smacked cucumber oh yeah 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 that's one of Adam's crazy it's really it really works yeah Yeah, it was one of his mad ideas that he came up with sort of taking a smacked cucumber and then adding buffalo wing and sour cream to it and it's honestly it's like is like flavor explosion (laughs) and quite simple it is yeah yeah um korean food's still really big yeah um and i think i think partly because the flavors are so different to Mm. what we have here but also it's a cuisine where you don't have to use very many different ingredients yeah um so as long as you've got gochujang you know the spicy sweet hot pepper paste um some soy sauce and some sesame oil 
then pretty much you can get you started. You can replicate that, yeah. those flavours. Yeah. yeah, I think um, Korean's one thing that's really taken hold. I mean, the fact that supermarkets are now selling it. Yeah. Is, is a huge testament to the fact that it's, you know, it's kind of the new tie or whatever. But it, it bubbled under for a while and then suddenly everyone started mm-hmm. doing it. But I think, again, it's because those flavours are, they're kind of approachable as well. Like it's nothing, it, it's yeah. nothing on you. You can sort of, all the flavour profiles, mm-hmm. it's different to what you've had before, but there's something similar in it too. Yeah. So you can kind of hook into it. But um, yeah, definitely Korean. So tell us, um, just thinking about the future as well, um, what... What sort of trends can you see popping up or is there anything that you think is kind of bubbling under at the minute that um, that is going to take I hold? Think Italian food's getting bigger and bigger. Your current issue is Italian. Yeah. Um, but it really is. I think people are looking more at regional food and thinking well, yeah. about higher quality ingredients as well. So, you know, trading up the pasta a little bit, um, starting to make their own tomato sauces, um, thinking about buying more of the kind of really beautiful um, DOP, you know, kind of protected origin um, ingredients yeah. from Italy. Things like fennel pollen that you mentioned yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're starting to sell. I mean, we've done a lot of sourcing in Italy, Italy this year. But things like a really great pesto with um, Genoa basil. Oh, that's wow. Kind of, um, protected origin as well. Some amazing artichokes from Rome, which is just totally different from the type you get in the UK. Because um, they have the long stems on as well when you're eating them. It's interesting because... Um, I think a lot of Italian and Spanish um, producers, they really value, um, you know, like bottled things and jarred things. Mm-hmm. So they don't think of it as kind of like a second yeah. tier ingredient. They think of it as like the first tier ingredient. So they'll do the most beautiful, like, you know, make cherry tomatoes that are kind of um, preserved and bottled or they'll do yeah. great sauces or they'll do the artichokes that you yeah. mentioned. Um, and it's not, it's not something cheap, it's something to be treasured yeah. and given as a, like a gift or, you know, used an, as a special ingredient yeah. or something. You're absolutely right. I mean, we find, I'm tasting so many high quality ingredients in, in tins, you know, the tinned fish as well. Yeah, yeah tinned fish is huge, isn't it? Um, but, you know, just jarred things. I mean, I was going to show you some of these beautiful oh, yeah. artichokes that we've got um, later. <laughs> but just in the UK, it's a, it's a really hard sell, selling yeah. preserved preserved vegetables yeah, preserved we, we fish preserved kind of, meat because yeah. it's the low quality stuff that, that we tend to have yeah. preserved um, whereas you can get such beautiful flavours um, and it'd be great if we can Europe. turn the tide on that yes. and make people stop buying that Absolutely. stuff yeah that's brilliant anything else do you think trend wise um, Japanese food yeah I think it's still going lots of people start off making sushi um, sushi making is still really popular for us um, but I think more people are kind of then moving from sushi to other types of dishes yeah um, more kind of Japanese home cooking. And that's, as you said, we've got all that amazing Japanese tableware that's just come in. Yeah. And I think mixing and matching crockery um, that you start to see now more, I think people are more interested in kind of individual pieces of ceramic. Yeah. Um, and so in Japan, kind of when you have a set on the table, it's not really a set, it's lots of individual items that yeah. people are mixing together. That's kind of also the way the meal works. Yeah. And I think that we're doing that more here now. That's great. Um, and then chilli. I think I'm sure Mexican food's going to keep growing, but not just chilies from Mexico. Um, different chilies from around the world and okay. kind of people enjoying those flavour profiles. What other, what other places would you be getting chilies from at the minute? Um, we're getting some from Thailand. Okay, cool. Um, we're getting more chilies from China. Um, okay. From, I think, the USA at the moment. Um, certainly India. Kind and of do Kashmiri they all... chilli, Kashmiri pods that you can't really oh, get wow, very much. Yeah. Um, you know, beautiful bright red chilli but not too hot. Um we're about to have arrive. And do they always co- do they always come in dried, or do you get them in? 
Um, most of the chilies we take are dried. Yeah, because I guess um, they've got a longer the, shelf life. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, we don't do any fresh produce. No. Um, some of the things in tins, like the chipotle adobo, I mean, that's that's mm. tremendously popular, um, which is in a kind of slightly sweet vinegary sauce. Yeah, that's lovely, isn't it? Vinegary. And that gives that really kind of authentic smoky flavour yeah, too. Yeah, just even stirred through beans, they're instantly amazing. Yeah. Is there anything you've ever got in that's just been an absolute washout in terms of, you know, you've ordered 5,000 of them in and not been able to sell oh, any? <laughs> Spanish dried beans. Oh, no. I think, I mean, they've got, they've got exactly the same problem that you were saying about... Um, things in jars in the uk and i think we just don't value um dried pulses particularly yeah, we don't at all yeah. and they're so good but i mm-hmm. think it's i think people just think it's the time involved and then there's this mm-hmm. weird thing of you know if you don't cook them properly they're going to poison me yeah. people have got all these preconceptions yeah. which is a shame because the good quality ones are incredible yeah. aren't they yeah so you've got and also we stuff. think of them as such yeah. as really cheap food and they are you know, even if you're spending Instead of two pounds a bag, you're spending five pounds a bag. Yeah, that still is you know twenty dinners. Yeah, um, and so it's it's not very expensive. But no. you know, trading up is, I think, you know, unless you've actually tried them and eaten them somewhere, it's it's a pretty hard sell. So you've got a big, big pile of beans. No, somewhere. no, we, we sold through them, but we didn't we didn't reorder, which makes me sad. Oh, I think no. now, I think I think that was when we started. It's about probably about three or four years ago yeah um and i'm tempted to bring them on again i think i think the time yeah, might have changed it. a little bit start yeah. here okay everybody go out buy these beans mm-hmm. make a lovely cassoulet or something but yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm tempted i must say but it's good that it's kind of that learning process as well well where you're you're allowed to bring something in buy it try it you know if if, if it's not selling great then you can try something else yeah. as well because as you said if if you're not shifting fresh produce it can't it can sit on the shelf mm-hmm. for a little while and you've got a little bit more time to like get people used to it. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, but yeah, thank you so much for chatting to us today. It's been fascinating. I'm now going to have a tour around the Aladdin's cave. I can't <laughs> wait. I'm so excited. Um, but yeah, thank you, Nicola. Thank you. And finally, here's travel editor Rhiannon on why camping in vineyards is the future. Hello, I'm Alex and I'm in the office today with Rhiannon who's come over from Bath and she's our travel editor and she's going to chat to us about camping. Are you going to talk about camping? Euro camping. <laughs> right. Euro camping. What is Euro camping? So Euro camp, um, a lot of people might know it, some people might have never heard about it depending on whether or not you've got children probably uh, that are making an assumption there but it's a camping company basically that operates across various European campsites and it's really popular with families. You can stay in a standard tent if you want to take your own or you can rent a mobile home or a cabin or they have some really nice safari tents ready um, you know ready erected that you can stay in and um I, I used to have holidays like that when we were little. I remember going with my mum and dad, but I haven't been on one for about 30 years. Um, and then when now that I've got two boys, it's like it's one of the most perfect ways to holiday, really, because, um, the you know, the boys love it because the sites are full of other kids to make friends with. And there's usually a big swimming pool and a play park and a trampoline. And that just keeps the children happy and therefore their parents are happy. Yeah, sounds great. <laughs> but if you don't have children, you'd probably, probably you know, not be your um, first thought. Okay, yeah. So where, where was it that you went? Well, the site we went to was called Domaine de Massaro and it was just outside a small town called Sommier in the Garde Department, which is in Occitanie uh, to the far south of France. It was quite a long drive. Um, we wanted to take quite a lot of kit with us, so we did an overnight sailing 
morning with Brittany Ferries. We took our own car and then drove down. Um, but with Eurocamp, they let you do this thing where you can break your journey. So we stayed on the way down and on the way back in the Dordogne at one, two of their other sites, oh, actually. Oh, okay. Which was really nice. It was like a little extra holiday. Yeah, <laughs> so, so yeah, connecting or not, yeah, making it like the journey's part of the... Yeah, the fun as well, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. So, did you like? I can like camping for me. It's like um, the only thing is the the food. You can you either get really great cooking and that you have to take a chef with you well obviously <laughs> not a professional chef but um did you do your own cooking or is the facilities on you know site to do your own um, cooking that's they're really interesting the sites are all a bit different i mean in general yes and that that's you know with a family that's quite good to have that flexibility and there's usually a small shop on each campsite and in france um the one we went to you know had lovely fruit and veg and always fresh bread and croissants in the morning um, but um, some of the sites have really nice restaurants and or pizza pop-ups, and there was one that we stopped off on on the way back that had little um, like street food uh, vans coming in, oh, every, different ones every How night. You know, Monday was pizza night, Tuesday was Thai night. Um, but also the, where we stayed was this area where they had just these lovely roadside stalls of um, melons and nectarines and courgettes that were grown in fields right behind the stalls. And you could just oh. stop and buy three melons for two euros or something. Oh, so, you know, it's so it's, it's no, it's so idyllic, isn't it's it? So nice. Um, and also, we chose that site because I was looking for somewhere that was a bit foodie, really. Um, so it has a restaurant on site that was surprisingly good for a campsite restaurant. Um, if anyone saw my pictures of the seafood platter that we had there on Instagram, they'll know what I mean. It was an amazing plate piled high with langoustine, razor clams and crabs and all sorts. And they, they also had a wood-fired pizza place there, but we, we didn't try that. But I'm sure they were delicious too. Yeah, so I saw that. I saw those pictures of the seafood platter, and I also saw some pictures of some wine. So I know, <laughs> even though you were with your kids, you managed to get that in there. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yes, another big selling point was the fact that the campsite was on a vineyard, which Fab. produces thirty thousand bottles of wine a year, and I didn't drink all of them. I promise. Um, if you're staying at the campsite, you can join a free tour, which it's a very short tour, just an hour long. But it was really interesting and nice to see where the wine comes from. Um, and you can also buy the wines afterwards, very reasonably priced. Um, the, the, that vineyard produces reds, whites and rosés. And their basic table wines were really good. Um, but they also had these lovely AOP wines, which the two that I really like, one was a white called La Capitale, which was made with Roussan and Vermentino grapes that was really honeyish and peachy. And then there was a red, La Tourie, which is their kind of best wine, probably, and had this deliciously smoky blend of Syrah and Grenache with hints of chocolate and vanilla. Um, and I'm now wishing that I'd bought a few more bottles <laughs> when I was there. Yeah, bring it back in the car. That's the benefit of not flying, <laughs> exactly. isn't it? So what else did you do while you were there? Were you up to other foodie bits? Or Yes, um, we did. We had a few day trips to the beach at La Grande Motte, La Grande Motte which was about half an hour's drive away through the Camargue. So, you know, passing those classic white horses and lots of water. It was beautiful. And... Um, 
But we mainly just hired bikes and pedaled into Sommier to eat and drink and wander through the market. Um, there was a really a great wide cycle path running past the campsite into town, so it was a really pleasant way to get there and back. Mm. And um, because it was so hot and the path was lined with herbs, it just smelled really oh, nice as that. well. Um, and Sommier is really pretty. Lawrence Durrell lived there for 30 years. I, I didn't know that before we went, and um, but apparently he said it was the prettiest place he'd ever seen, and you could, oh. you could believe oh. it. It's very classically French. It's beautiful stone houses, little tiny streets, um, shuttered buildings, little arched alleyways from the river. There's kind of little network from the river to the mar- two main market squares, and... Um, and the markets were, are on twice a week there and are just your classic French market with great fruit and veg in all different shapes and sizes and colours and um, some really nice little producers. One woman was just selling blueberries and you could buy them just in tubs or as blueberry jam and blueberry tarts. Oh, wow. And um, my kind of thing. It was very nice. And there was a stall that I also put some pictures on Instagram of, of these lovely, um, a woman who made homemade jams and liqueurs and flavoured caramels. I hadn't come across so many flavoured caramels before and she had these lovely pastel coloured labels, but they had things like, they were flavoured with things like rosemary and lavender and licorice. Oh, Really interesting flavours. They'd be nice for like little souvenirs and gifts for people at home as well. nice, yes. Oh, and they also, the other big discovery at that market was um, a sweet fougasse which had a kind of crunchy sugar topping and was flavoured with orange flower water. Ah. And I'd never heard fougasse like that. I'd always had a savoury version. So that was a real discovery. Lovely. And what about, um, I know there's so many gorgeous like markets in France, but like this, I can imagine there's lots of nice little cafes and restaurants as well. Did you try many of those? Or um, Well, I have to confess that we didn't try as many as I was planning because our, I'd kind of forgotten that our boys are still so little and they need to eat before six o'clock and most oh, of, of the restaurants don't open till half past seven. So it was just a bit too late really. Um, and it was the the kind of the ones that I really wanted to try were the ones that opened later the the very French ones so or local ones but we still had some really nice meals but just not what I had expected so we went to one evening we went to a tapas place called Alegria where we had really good gambas um, and another evening we had actually we had really lovely wood fired pizzas at a place sitting out in sunshine under olive trees in this little oh. courtyard called La Bistour. And um, and opposite there was a lovely chocolate shop, like something from Chocolat. Oh, and, um, The boys, like next door to that, was this uh, artisan frozen yogurt stall where this uh, they would kind of whiz up whichever fruit you wanted with the frozen yogurt. It's custom, you know, you chose. You, you, it, it was plain frozen yogurt, and you would say, "I'd like the fig, or I'd like the cherry," and then they'd whiz the fruit up with it. Oh and wow! It so a bit like, well, a nice way to get one of your five a day. I can imagine. <laughs> Put a healthy spin on it. Yeah. Any any other discoveries from while you were there? Well, not exactly a discovery, but there is something I came across that I really want to try now. Um, it was at the place called La Bistour, and I'd seen these lovely bottles with very cute labels. And that, saying La Marquisette, and I'd never heard of that before. Um, and, and I asked about it, and it was a ready-mixed 
drink of a classic drink that they serve across southwest France at village fairs, apparently, and it's made with lemons and cremant and white wine and soda, mm. a bit of sugar, I think, and it sounds delicious, but because it's something that they don't tend to make to order, they, you know, they, they make it in villages for events and things it's quite hard to track down and I didn't I didn't manage to so if anyone listening has a good recipe for it let me know because I think I'd like to try making it making some up yeah let let us know on on our social media channels if you if you know it's we're at olive magazine on instagram twitter and facebook so and also on pinterest so yeah let us know if you know any marquisette recipes well thank you Rhiannon and (laughs) yeah I'm looking forward to reading about this uh, in full on the website as well Absolutely. Thank you you to everyone who took part in today's podcast. And if you like what you heard, and why wouldn't you, please remember to review and rate us and subscribe over at iTunes. It helps us get higher in the charts, and that means even more foodies just like you get to hear us. Remember, you can buy an actual copy of Olive Magazine proper in all good supermarkets and newsagents right now. This week, we have the new issue out featuring Vietnamese barbecue, pistachio and white chocolate souffles, Germany's secret foodie island, and the new must-visit UK restaurants. Plus, you can head to olivemagazine.com and get chatting to us about all things food, drink and travel over at Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Olive Magazine. Until next time, dear listeners, happy eating, happy cooking and happy travelling.